0: Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the Ark of the Scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get better accountability and richer discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but I'm aiming at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. If this is you, get a few friends to join you. If this isn't you, I'll bet you have a few friends in that boat, so why don't you get them together and work through the Word Diet together. More information is available about the book project at ThoroughlyEquipped.org. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible, so please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Today we're in the book of Joshua, the book that awakened me to the power and applicability of the Old Testament, in particular the fruit and the fight of Canaan, and it led to my book on Joshua inheriting our promised land. And so these episodes are, in essence, an extended audio version of that book. We're getting ready to start Joshua 5 as we continue our walk through this book that's often considered a hinge. Think about how God is still working to redeem the fall of man at Eden. And we also have the promises made to Abraham. All of that is being resolved in a way here in the book of Joshua. But it's a hinge. What's going to come next? Will there be faithfulness or not? And of course, if you know the long, slow, painful story of Israel, the answer is largely not. And that will end in exile as the hinge comes to an end in 2 Kings 25. We just finished chapters 3 and 4 And it's interesting there that God was controlling water as a cosmic power. We see the same sort of language in Psalm 95, verses 3 through 5. For the Lord is a great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land." And he formed the dry land for Israel is across the Jordan as well. And part of this should be considered God's victory over Canaanite Baal worship. As with the Israelites here, the Jordan is often considered a form of transition in the Bible. Consider 2 Kings 2 and the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. Or Second Kings 5 for Naaman and his baptism there. We also have Jesus' baptism and transition to ministry at the Jordan And for us, Hebrews 3 and 4 describes the promised land as a form of true rest. Ian Thomas describes this as a form of sanctification, and often it's used as a picture of heaven, as we see in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And then we also finish chapters three and four with the great memorials, the first of many of those that we'll see in the book of Joshua. Joshua 5 verse 1 says, Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, their hearts melted in fear and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. Now that the Israelites have crossed the Jordan near Jericho, you'd probably expect to find them fighting the battle of Jericho in this chapter. The last chapter closed by telling us that God had dried up the Jordan so the Canaanites would know that he was powerful and would fear him. This chapter opens by informing us that all the Canaanite kings heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites and that their hearts melted. News traveled fast. Perhaps the kings lost courage because their people lost courage, or perhaps they expected more time to prepare for the Israelite onslaught. The time would seem ripe for God and Israel to begin their battles in the promised land. Common sense would seem to dictate a quick strike. Instead, we find an entire chapter devoted to more preparation, circumcision of all the males, celebrating Passover for the first time in years, and Joshua waiting for instructions. The delay may have been useful in increasing the anxiety of the Canaanites. In any case, we know that God viewed these things as essential to his provision and their success. Likewise, we often want to get into battle too soon or we go into battles too unprepared as if bringing a knife to a gunfight. We cannot avoid or overlook the difficult or seemingly unrelated tasks that God views as necessary if we're going to have success in conquering our promised lands. So, in verses 2 through 12, Israel will be observing and reinstating two rituals which were required, apparently, to finish the transition. And notice that it's in reverse order from Exodus. There we saw Passover before the law. and It's a picture of salvation. The Passover lamb allows for the deliverance from bondage, and then the law is given. We saw the same thing with the election and the grace toward Abraham and his faith before circumcision all that is a picture of justification salvation and then the requirements but now it's reversed it's interesting that circumcision comes before passover and that's a picture of sanctification that obedience is necessary for blessing and we see this in the law exodus 12 verses 44 through 48 that circumcision is seen as a prerequisite for observing the passover As readers, we also might hope that this is going to reverse the outcome of the previous generation. We saw Passover leading to law that didn't work very well. We saw Passover leading to law, which didn't work very well. Hopefully, circumcision and then the Passover will work a lot better for this generation. So first, let's deal with circumcision by reading Joshua 5, 2 through 9. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeoth Haraloth. Now this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land. He had solemnly promised their ancestor to give us a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way, and after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you, So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. So circumcision is emphasized heavily in this passage, and you can see why. But right here, right now, that's a bit confusing. Israel's not allowed to take immediate advantage of the fear in Jericho. Beyond that, God commands the males to be circumcised. Having an impassable river behind you, a powerful enemy in front of you, an unknown land to travel through, The women and children along for the ride, and then incapacitating all your soldiers? Not exactly standard military strategy, but perhaps that's the point. Israel would not conduct warfare or other aspects of life as other nations did. The timing of the circumcision command also speaks to God teaching them more about dependence on Him. From a human vantage point, it obviously would have been far less risky to do the surgeries on the other side of the Jordan. But God wants to stretch their faith in him. Crossing the Jordan had required some trust, but not much. And besides, they already knew about the Red Sea crossing from years earlier. Moreover, the timing indicates the general call to obedience follows the acceptance of grace in the specific call to baptism. God does not call us to any task, let alone a difficult task, before we accept the gift of his grace. There were other advantages as well. It would have more meaning when done voluntarily as adults than when it was imposed on eight-day-old children. It would have more meaning when done on their new home turf as the first ceremony they observed after they had figuratively received the blessing of the promised land. It would have more meaning within the community than if it were a more individual matter, and it promoted unity. Note that in our military's basic training, It is common to break troops down individually so that they can be built back up together under their leader. Circumcision here and now would accomplish that purpose for Israel and its soldiers. This rite of passage would leave the men broken for a time, but when they recovered, they would be more unified under both their earthly and heavenly commanders. Doing the circumcision now also implies that doing it earlier was inappropriate or irrelevant. When reduced to a mere ritual, circumcision would not require any faith, and God would not want them to engage in a pointless ritual, one that did not accurately reflect the state of their disobedient hearts. In fact, the parents may have had no desire to circumcise their children. Again, this would be consistent with the lack of faith they displayed at Kadesh Barnea in Numbers 13 and 14. In any case, for the children of these disobedient and faithless parents, their uncircumcision would have been a daily reminder of the previous generation's failure to follow God and to obtain his promises and blessings. Now, what's the big deal about circumcision? For Israel, it was the biggest deal. It was God's covenant of the flesh, the sign of the covenant with God, meant to be an everlasting covenant established by God with Abraham. We read about this at length in Genesis 17 verses 10 through 14. If you were not circumcised, you had broken the covenant and were to be cut off from the people. It was a necessary preparation for Passover, Exodus twelve forty-eight. the next thing Israel would do in Canaan, and it represented the very basics in general obedience. Circumcision also symbolized separation from the pagans and their prevalent sins of the flesh, especially those that were sexual in nature. As a mark of distinctiveness, circumcision would have been irrelevant since they were in the wilderness and not interacting with many other people. Moreover, given their disobedience and lack of faith, they were not particularly separate from the pagans anyway. Ultimately, circumcision of the flesh was meant to represent circumcision of the heart. As Paul wrote, a man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical, Know a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. This is Romans two twenty-eight and 29. Or in Colossians two eleven and 12. In Christ you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead." This was even meant to be understood in Old Testament times. In Deuteronomy 10.16, the people of Israel are commanded to circumcise their hearts, and in Deuteronomy thirty verse six, they are told that the Lord would circumcise their hearts. For us, Jesus is the author of the true circumcision. For the Jews entering Canaan, Joshua, as a type of Jesus, would oversee the physical and spiritual circumcision of the people, In both cases, circumcision was supposed to imply becoming aware of sin and dealing with it properly. They were, and we are, to see God's holiness, to be convicted of specific sins, and to respond with a broken and contrite spirit, as described in Psalm 51 verses 16 and 17. Finally, note that this episode was commemorated by the naming of the place as Gilgal, which sounds like the Hebrew word meaning roll. God promises that he has now rolled away the reproach of Egypt from them. Crossing the Jordan in faith and getting circumcised in obedience represented their willingness to follow God. We're not sure what God meant by this reproach. Perhaps when the event made the Egyptian newspapers, they would no longer be able to laugh at Israel's inability to take the promised land, their express goal when they left Egypt. In a sense, the stigma of failure in the wilderness and their homelessness would be rolled back as they entered Canaan and in a more figurative sense it truly ended their bondage to Egypt. No longer would they hearken back to their days in Egypt in bondage but still having access to some of the niceties of Egyptian civilization and prosperity. One of the ironies of the Christian life is that in some ways one is better off in Egypt than in the wilderness One cannot say that in comparing Canaan and Egypt. In any case, as we move into our Canaan, God can roll away the approach of our days in Egypt and the wilderness. All right, let's take a break here. Please check out Proclaim from Pure Radio, Kentucky Anna's Christian Community Bulletin available online at pureradio.org and with free paper editions in store at 200 locations. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station and this show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to the word diet. In the previous segment, we covered Joshua 5 1 through 9 as the Israelites are circumcised after they cross the Jordan. Now we move to the Passover in verses 10 through 12. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. The first Passover had been inaugurated on the deliverance of Israel from the bondage of Egypt. We read about this in great detail in Exodus 12. After repeatedly refusing to yield completely to God, Pharaoh and Egypt were dealt the worst of the ten plagues, the death of all of their firstborn. To avoid the wrath of the angel of death, the Israelites were told to sacrifice the blood of a lamb without defect and to put the blood of the lamb around the door frames of their homes. The angel, seeing the blood, would pass over the house, sparing those inside." Of course we too avoid the angel of death by applying blood on the door frames of our hearts in faith the blood of our passover lamb Jesus Christ Other details of the passover celebration are also of interest The lambs were to be year old males without defect and with no broken bones Likewise Christ offered himself in his prime he was perfect and his bones were not broken on the cross John 19:31-37 The Passover lamb was to be chosen on the 10th day of the month, chapter 12, verse 3, and taken care of until the 14th day. Likewise, Israel crossed the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the 10th day and celebrated the Passover on the 14th day. The sovereignty of God is evident here as he controlled the timing of the events of history so that they would celebrate this Passover exactly 40 years after the first one. The sacrifice of the lamb was not sufficient The lamb's blood must be sprinkled around the doorframe. Likewise, God's gift is universally offered but not universally accepted. We must accept the gift on faith as our participation in God's provision. The blood was to be applied using a hyssop plant. Likewise, the hyssop was used in other purification rituals and was used at the crucifixion, John 19.29. For us today, it represents the role of faith in applying the blood to our hearts. The Passover meal involves specific details as well. We read about those in chapter 12 of Exodus, verses 8 through 11. They were to eat bitter herbs in order to recall the bitter years of their slavery in Egypt. They were to eat bread without yeast, reflecting a desire to avoid sin. Yeast is often used as a picture of sin in the scriptures and its impact on us. And they were to eat in the same kind of haste with which the people left Egypt. We read about this in Exodus 12, 39 and Deuteronomy 16, 3. They were to roast the meat over a fire, the fire representing God's wrath, and hopefully their zeal to obey God. They were to eat it, not only sacrificing it, but drawing sustenance from it. And they were to eat it while dressed to travel, ready for action. After the initial Passover, the Israelites celebrated it one more time at Mount Sinai, Numbers 9, verse 2, shortly before their faith stumbled in the 12 spies episode in Numbers 13 and 14. God had arranged for them to have enough provision from their time in Egypt to celebrate it at Mount Sinai. But after that, God's will was that they would celebrate it using the bounty of Canaan. Instead, they were on a manna and meat diet afterward and were unable to observe the Passover. In any case, after their rebellion and God's judgment, observing the Passover, symbolizing deliverance from judgment, wouldn't have made much sense anyway. Finally, the Passover celebration is significant in terms of military strategy. Again, this doesn't show up in the textbooks, but in Exodus thirty-four twenty-four, God had promised divine national defense whenever they observed certain festivals. Or as Psalm twenty-three five puts it, "You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies." Once in Canaan, it is exciting to see that the Israelites are already enjoying the produce of the land, and with little effort on their part, a beautiful picture of grace and abundant life. As the Israelites threatened, the rural Canaanites fled, many heading for the protection of the big city, Jericho. This merely fulfilled earlier prophecy, for example, in Deuteronomy 6.11, where God promised they would reap all sorts of blessings that they didn't sow. And it is noteworthy to watch God end his provision of manna just as the land began to yield its produce to Israel. It ended as suddenly and miraculously as it began. This teaches us not to expect extraordinary provision when the ordinary is readily available. In the text in front of us, note that the Passover lamb is not even mentioned. Instead, the focus is on the bread, the fruit of the land, instead of the manna. Okay, let's move on to chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, "'Are you for us or for our enemies?' "'Neither,' he replied, "'but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come.'" Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Coming into this passage, the question has to be, now what? There have been no further directions provided. The previous instructions have been surprising from a military standpoint, but not at all surprising from a spiritual standpoint. Was there more spiritual preparation to undergo? If not, when and how would they deal with the formidable city of Jericho? It's interesting to speculate on what Joshua was thinking. In any case, he goes for a walk, presumably to seek God in his solitude and contemplate possible military strategies. Joshua knows that God will provide the victory, but he does not lay in a hammock waiting for it. Instead, he continues to prepare as best as he knows how by scouting out Jericho. Again, it's a matter of God's provision and his participation. As Teddy Roosevelt expressed it, pray not for lighter burdens, but stronger backs. As Joshua walked, thought, prayed, and meditated, he surely considered the apparent challenges in dealing with Jericho. They had no weapons against its walls to the sky, Deuteronomy 1.28, and Jericho was prepared for a long siege. They had few other effective weapons and no troop experience, There was no apparent capacity to retreat since they were backed up against the Jordan at flood stage, and Jericho could not be bypassed because it would leave families and possessions vulnerable to a rear-flank attack. In a word, he must have soberly counted the prospective costs. But as Joshua had done in spying out the fruit and fight of Canaan 40 years earlier, he surely remembered the promises of God. God's record, from the deliverance in Egypt to the recent crossing of the Jordan River, was certainly strong enough to warrant faith despite the evident hurdles, I suspect that Joshua probably wrestled with his faith a bit, but ultimately trusted God and was mostly curious to see how God would accomplish this great work. Maybe he foresaw the awesome opportunity and advantage in conquering the most difficult city first. As Mark Twain once said, if you're going to swallow two frogs, swallow the largest one first. And Jericho turned out to be the largest single frog they would encounter. There were also strategic advantages in gaining access to the mountains west of Jericho, and in attacking a city in east-central Canaan, effectively cutting the region in half. In the midst of his thoughts, Joshua looks up and is startled to see a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword, ready for battle. A clear reference to spiritual warfare follows in Ephesians 6.17 and Hebrews 4.12. Joshua's heart is probably beating fast. Presumably the manifestation was impressive, but not enough to evoke worship. But Joshua is still able to be strong and courageous. Joshua asks if he is friend or foe, a practical question that does not allow any neutrality. Nonetheless, the question is off target. The response he gets is neither. The commander of the Lord's army says, in essence, that the question is not whether he is on Joshua's side, but whether Joshua is on his side. For Israel and Joshua, God didn't come to help but to lead. For us, God comes not to support our ministry but to be our ministry. Finally, note the timing and the extent of the provision here. This happens just after their obedience in the two ceremonies. Likewise, obtaining God's provision requires our participation, our obedience to that which he has already revealed, and our trust in his character and promises. And God responds to the difficult task at hand by sending a personal manifestation to Joshua. For us, as our difficulties increase, God's provision increases proportionately. Paul tells us that God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus, and that he will not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. Joshua's response to all this is totally appropriate, In a word he's convinced. He eats dust, offers to be his servant, and awaits further instructions. But the only instructions given are for worship, not for battle. In a moment reminiscent of Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3, Joshua is told to take off his shoes because he is standing on holy ground. He obeys, and the story ends with no more clues about how Jericho would be conquered. But what has become crystal clear to Joshua is who would be conquering Jericho. It would be God. Joshua and Israel would be along for the ride, but God would be the cause of and reason for the victory. Joshua had anticipated a battle between the Israelites and Canaanites with him in charge. Instead he learned that the battle was the Lord's. Imagine Joshua's relief, how comforting this must have been to change his mindset from leadership and responsibility with him in charge into stewardship, reliance, and dependence with God in charge. As Lissa Beale puts it, there are things more important for Joshua to know than whether the commander was Israelite or Canaanite. And then Stephen Williams, this is a warning against the easy invocation of God as being on any side, except on the side of the holy and the true. Joshua has done this. Lord, we pray that we would do the same. We want to be on your side. Time to take a break. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. Right now we're in Joshua 6 after spending the last two segments in Joshua 5. Joshua 1 through 5 is all about preparation, five chapters worth. Now the preparation is over, the battles are about to begin. As we consider the battles in our own lives, have we adequately prepared for those battles? Are we willing to trust and obey? Are we committed to worship or worry? Are we living in dependence on God or independent of God? lessons from the first part of Joshua indicate that inadequate preparation is a recipe for strategic disaster. We must prepare our hearts and minds before entering our battles. As we noted throughout, it's surprising how long it takes one to get to the action, so to speak, in the book of Joshua. But as we've seen, it is important to be prepared, especially in God's economy. If we do not understand God's promises, if we do not have sufficient trust in God's provision, if we're unwilling to step out in faith and to obey in preparation, then engaging our enemies, so to speak, in battle will inevitably result in defeat. We've been talking about Jericho's strategic importance. It was along an important north-south trade route, and it was halfway north and south with access to the hill country to the west. In essence, it was a border town and a boundary of Canaan The Jordan River was the actual border, but Jericho had the ability to control that part of the Jordan. So this was a battle that could not safely be avoided, and it was an enemy whose defeat would have many positive byproducts. The problem was that that defeating this enemy was seemingly well beyond the reach of Joshua and the Israelites. In their own strength, conquering Jericho was a pipe dream, or at least would require a long, drawn-out siege. But God's plan was different. He would provide a supernatural victory over Jericho while still requiring a minimum level of their participation. The same is true for you as well. Have you had Jerichos in your past? If so, then praise God for his deliverance from that stronghold. Do you have a Jericho today? Do you struggle with overwhelming fear, depression, loneliness, or self-pity? Are you dealing with trying circumstances, from a difficult marriage to a debilitating illness? Are you having trouble in accepting God's will for your life today, from a call to be single at this point in your life to having a job you don't like? All of us, at one time or another, have battles that are simply beyond our ability to handle. On such occasions, we must rely on God's supernatural provision to deliver us from it or to help us prevail through it. The Israelites' victory at Jericho will model the pathway to spiritual victory for us as well. Before we even see the details of the battle of Jericho, other applications come to mind. First, our battles will usually be one at a time. We're not called to conquer our souls in a month. We're not called to take our promised land in one fell swoop. In fact, this is one of Satan's strategies to make us feel so unworthy that God could not possibly use us despite our humble dependence on God. The result is a blanket of inappropriate guilt that can paralyze us. Instead, the Spirit convicts us of a few specific sins pricking rather than blanketing our consciences. I learned this from my time teaching violin lessons. A student might be doing 50 things wrong when he played. I could tell him about all 50, or better, choose the one or two most important ones and focus on those. So too, the Spirit with us in our sanctification. Second, in our move into the Promised Land, we often ignore our Jerichos and focus instead on the problems created by our Jerichos. Imagine that Israel failed to make progress against Jericho. For example, over time they would have trouble finding food, they would grow increasingly anxious about an attack from Jericho, and they would, could become bored and complacent. But those three would not be the problem per se, they would be manifestations of the true problem. Likewise, it is important that we deal with our sin rather than trying to bandage the results of our sin. It is important to cure the disease rather than merely treat or mask the symptoms. We must go after the cause rather than the effects. All right, let's get into the text, starting with Joshua 6, 1 through 5. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout and the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. So here Joshua receives instructions from the Lord, perhaps continuing the conversation from the end of chapter 5 with the pre-incarnate Christ. A contingent of armed men and priests with trumpets were to march around Jericho once a day for six days carrying the ark, On the seventh day, they were to circle Jericho seven times, and then after a long trumpet blast and a loud shout, the walls of Jericho would come tumbling down. From there, the troops would enter the city and kill everyone. Notice the subject and verb tense in the opening, I have delivered. This was God's battle, and the victory had already been accomplished. Their victory would be a gift from God and utterly supernatural. The victory was theirs for the taking, requiring only a modest level of participation, That said, their participation was required. Note that God wanted an armed guard along for the daily walk, even though he was fully capable of taking care of his ark. And God provides assurances, despite the wall's height and Joshua's probable concerns about exerting effective leadership in his first battle. Interestingly, the Lord opens his promise with the word see, both for emphasis and perhaps to note the irony that they, in fact, could not see how God was moving. There are many other details of interest. The trumpets were not musical instruments, but served a military purpose, communication, and a religious purpose to signify the presence of God. They were instructed to bring the ark, fitting since it most aptly symbolized the presence of God. Having the priest and the contingent was unusual. They were usually exempted from battle, but it brought them honor and again served as a representation of God and his part of this battle. In using priests and armed men, the picture we have is that the Israelites were called to worship and to warfare. And the use of sevens throughout the instructions, seven priests, seven days, seven trumpets, symbolizes perfection and completeness. The length of the campaign means that they marched on the Sabbath. Again, ironically, a few chapters after the Pentateuch is finished, God instructs them to do what would later be considered a violation of the Sabbath, As Jesus would later emphasize by purposefully doing his healing miracles on Sabbaths, a simple list of do's and don'ts for the Sabbaths, or in general, misses the point of what God wants for us. We saw something similar with Rahab back in chapter 2 as a liar and a traitor, and yet a hero of the faith and welcomed as a Gentile into Israel. Speaking of Rahab, we haven't run into her yet in this chapter. That comes later, but keep in mind that from chapter 2 forward, Rahab is the named prostitute who's running circles around an anonymous king. This is exactly what we saw in Exodus where the Pharaoh is unnamed and a bunch of women are dominating him early in that book. The women were defeating Pharaoh. What a humiliation that was. God and Israel are going to defeat the kings, the cities, and the gods of Canaan. The reference to seven and seven days in particular in verse 4 echoes the good creation of God and the subsequent rest that they would achieve or should achieve. Also corresponds to the seven days of the post-Passover Feast of Unleavened Bread with the seventh day lining up with the final assembly which would line up with what's going to happen with the fall of Jericho. In verse 5, the word city is used 13 times in this chapter, but the term can range from large urban centers to a village, town, or even just a citadel or fortress. In the context, we know that Jericho was big enough to be a big deal, but it was also smaller than Gibeon, referenced in chapter 10, verse 2, and Hazor in chapter 11 verses 10 and 12, and maybe some of the other cities. So it's not so much the size that is in mind here, but its importance strategically to holding the boundary land, again, being the very first city that Israel would come into. The other cities are noted as important and or royal. And we also know that Jericho was small enough to march around seven times on the seventh day. One last point in verse 5, the ram's horn, the Hebrew word here is yobol, is the same word as the jubilee which is mostly described in Leviticus 25 and 27 in fact there's only two other references to it one of them is in Exodus 19:13 at Sinai in describing the law or at least the run up to the law There it reminds me of James 1 25, whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. The perfect law that gives freedom is what Israel is experiencing here, and ironically what they experienced at Sinai as well. Here they're being given the land, and it is a form of jubilee. Gordon McConville says this strongly suggests that the gift of land to Israel, following her liberation from slavery in Egypt, is a kind of jubilee, a release from slavery into freedom, independence, and possession. All right, it's time to take a break. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me there. Questions and comments are welcome on my Facebook. Previous episodes are available through podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and so on. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the previous segment, we started into Joshua 6, covering verses 1 through 5. That takes us to verses 6 through 16. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry seven trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army advance, march around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the Ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets in the Ark of the Lord's covenant, following them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the Ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding. But Joshua had commanded the army, Do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, do not say a word, until the day I tell you to shout, then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling it once, Then the army returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them, and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. A few small things to start. Obviously, this is a military and religious procession surrounding the city with an armed guard and the priest. Also, the narrative here sounds quite a bit like creation. The first day, the second day, doesn't continue to repeat it on days three through six, but then the seventh day, of course, is quite special. And then finally, the Hebrew word for crossover appears three times in verses seven and eight, although many translations render it differently as the NIV does. But it is the same word, and it's as if it's a continuation of crossing the Jordan, one commentator noted that Jericho will succumb as surely as the waters of the Jordan yielded. They've crossed over the Jordan, they're about to cross over Jericho. But let's imagine the look on Joshua's face. Imagine the response of the armed men and the people to the details of the plan. The only thing that could have prepared them for this was that their pre-battle maneuvers were equally odd and that God had moved in equally miraculous ways before. There are no plans to use battering rams on the walls or to lay siege to the city. The tactics were not only impractical but would make them look foolish. Perhaps that is what made the plan ideal in God's economy. It required faith, humility, obedience, and a recognition that this could be won only through God's power. Another key was that only God could receive the glory under these circumstances. But what seemed foolish would turn out to be perfect. The wisdom of the world would be unable to stand in the face of the foolishness of God, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1. Or as God says in Isaiah, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Frederick Beekner says much the same thing. The wisdom of men is the kind of worldly wisdom that more or less all men have been living by since the caveman. It is best exemplified by such homely utterances as, You've got your own life to lead. Business is business. Charity begins at home. Don't get involved. God helps those who help themselves. Safety first. And so forth. What God says, on the other hand, is the life you save is the life you lose. In other words, the life you clutch, hoard, guard, and play safe with is, in the end, a life worth little to anybody, including yourself, and only a life given away for love's sake is a life worth living. To bring his point home, God shows us a man who gave his life away to the extent of dying in national disgrace without a penny in the bank or a friend to his name. In terms of men's wisdom, he was a capital P, capital F, perfect fool, and anyone who thinks he can follow him without making something like the same kind of a fool of himself is laboring under not a cross, but a delusion. As Beekner notes, we are called to foolishness in a sense. The message of the cross is too foolish for some people, too supernatural or perhaps just too easy, a stumbling block for those who think they must work for their salvation. In terms of sanctification, our call to obedience, to do or not do certain things, is often interpreted as foolishness by the world. Having seen God move within your own Jericho stories, you may have experienced something that others, even other Christians, would not believe. In fact, if you hadn't been there, would you believe it yourself? Instead, all we observe from Joshua and the people is unquestioning obedience. Presumably, Joshua and the people had at least flashes of doubt and questions about exactly how God would accomplish this, but there would be no replay here of the grumbling Israelites for the doubts Moses expressed as he was given his commission. In fact, Joshua doesn't even mention that God had delivered Jericho. Apparently, he assumed that they remembered and that their faith in God was that strong. Note also that the first day they got up early the next morning in verse 12, and on the seventh day at daybreak in verse 15. This serves as a picture of their excitement, obedience, and pragmatism, Wanting to do their part when it was most opportune during the cool of the day. One of the commands they were to follow was to remain silent on the march except for the trumpets in verse 10. To the people of Jericho this must have seemed rather eerie. It certainly displayed amazing self-control and discipline. Imagine so many people trying to remain quiet for that long. It elevated the power of the trumpets, again representing God, not having to compete with any Israelite voices. For the Israelites, it would encourage focus and meditation. This would be appropriate, since one should be silent when God is speaking. In addition, they might have responded inappropriately to any jeers from Jericho, or they might have been tempted to complain, express their fears, or engage in battle cries. The goal was not pumping themselves up, but waiting on God, not a mustering of natural strength, but a dependence on supernatural strength. In all, they would only have to march to and from Jericho, and then less than 30 minutes around Jericho itself. On the seventh day, it would take about three hours for them to walk around the city seven times. Perhaps surprisingly, the city walls encompassed only nine acres or so because building a city wall was relatively difficult and costly. The norm was for a walled city to be relatively small and then people from the surrounding area would come into the city for protection when necessary. Again, it's interesting that the Israelites had to participate at some level, even in a victory that would ultimately be utterly supernatural. And it is fitting that they would have to work harder on the day of the battle, both in terms of walking and fighting. And it's ironic that on the seventh day they would work the hardest, but ultimately achieve their rest. And on the seventh day they would be relatively weak, going into the fighting itself. So too with us. God is most effective when we are weak, we are dependent on Him, as Paul writes about in Second Corinthians twelve, verses nine and ten. God needs us to be weak so that His strength can be revealed. John fifteen five and John five thirty. Likewise, I'm told that a lifeguard will sometimes delay his rescue until the drowning person is too weak to fight him and endanger them both. Even after Joshua and the people accept the merits of God's plan in defeating Jericho, it is still a remarkable test of their faith. It was what amounted to a seemingly useless physical exercise but a valuable spiritual exercise in following God's will and trusting his timing. Moreover, they would probably face increasing scorn from the people on top of the wall as their daily ritual continued. The text reads as if the orders were given to the people daily. The seven days are never explicitly mentioned to the people in the text. If so, this models the way in which God often deals with us, showing us only a little bit of his specific will at a time. My favorite application from this story is pointing to their patient obedience in the face of their limited understanding of God's specific plan. In Galatians 6:9, Paul encourages us not to become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Likewise in Hebrews 10-36, we're told to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For Joshua and the Israelites, they had no physical indication that anything was about to happen to the walls of Jericho. For six days and seven circumferences on the seventh day, not a single stone came down. It is not until they give the shout that God sends the walls tumbling down completely. Hebrews 11.30 tells us that the walls fell by their faith. In history, this is how the Berlin Wall came crashing down. And in our personal lives, the same principle holds. The sovereign God of history is working behind the scenes in ways we often cannot see at the time, But then suddenly the moment arrives. Often God graciously shows us a stone or two falling off the wall to bolster our faith, but we don't always get that. As we battle our own Jerichos, they will often fall with amazing suddenness. Until they do, we are to remain faithful in prayer and obedience. The bottom line is that we need to keep marching in trust of God's promises and faithfulness and in obedience to God's will. All right, let's move on to the rest of the chapter. We'll read chapter 6, verses 17 through 27. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. When the trumpets sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord, and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Joshua said to them two men who had spied out the land, Go into the prostitute's house and bring her out, and all who belong to her, in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it, but they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her, because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho, and she lives among the Israelites to this day." At that time, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath, Cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild the city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout the land. As the NIV Study Bible text note describes, devotion refers to the irrevocable giving over of things or persons to the Lord, often by totally destroying them. We will see this practice again in Joshua, and there's a lot more to say about it that we cannot finish in this segment. And actually, the people had already devoted things to God in their earlier victories over Sion and Og, as referenced in this book in chapter 2, verse 10. On a practical level, devotion was very effective at striking terror into future combatants, and their failure here sets up Achan's sin in the next chapter, underlining how important it is that we take great care of the resources that God entrusts to us. Devotion could include death or destruction, or devoting the resources captured to God's service. In any case, the people forfeited it all. Of course, this was especially fitting for this battle. God had given them the city, and thus it is appropriate that he would direct them in what they could do with it. It was God's victory, therefore it was God's loot. It is also fitting in that Jericho was the first fruits of Canaan. Devotion in this first battle also reiterated to the Israelites that God had promised them a land of milk and honey, not of silver and gold. He would provide them with all of their needs and only some of their wants. This would also help them avoid covetousness, materialism, and temptations to idolatry, all problems that will arise in the next chapter. The only exception was Rahab and her household. They were saved as per the agreements she had reached with the spies. Ironically, because she was personally devoted to God and faith, the Israelites did not devote her to the Lord. The walls of Jericho were devoted in the sense that they were destroyed, and in chapter 6, verse 26, Joshua pronounced a curse on anyone who would rebuild Jericho's walls. Why? It would steal God's glory as a slap in his face, and apparently the pile of rubble was meant to be another memorial for the Israelites, a perpetual reminder to the people for us the application is obvious. We would be fools to rebuild our Jericho's, especially after God has moved so powerfully to tear them down for us. Sadly, people eventually forgot about the curse and the penalty for rebuilding Jericho's walls. In 1 Kings 16.34, we read that the curse was fulfilled 500 years later as a man rebuilt the foundation and its gates. The ethical challenges of devotion and understanding the historical and biblical context is a long and important topic, but we don't have time for that in this segment. While there's so much more to say about this, let me close with one other detail. In verse 23, Rahab and her family are put outside the camp. Literally, the phrase here is made to rest. Remembering Rahab's connection to Jesus, Beal notes she is an ancestor of Christ who gives us true rest. Lord, may we experience that rest as we walk in faith and obedience. It's been good to be with you today. We hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.